0: Good morning and welcome to The Morning Briefing for Monday, May 21st, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to speak to Melissa Bryant from IAVA and get their thoughts on all the big things that have been happening in the veteran community, legislatively and otherwise, here in Washington, D.C., including the nomination of Robert Wilkie. For secretary of the VA, we'll find out what the newest of the big VSOs on the block has to say about that, the Mission Act, burn pit legislation, and so much more. We're also going to talk to Chris White. Chris is the founder of Freedom Hard. Now, Freedom Hard, they're not just another military t-shirt company. No, they're also not just another military coffee company. Oh, no, they're also not... This another military cigar company. In fact, they're all three of those things and more. We're going to talk to Chris about where he got the idea for his company, how he developed this wide-ranging brand that is Freedom Hard, and where he thinks it's going from here. But before we do any of that, it's time to welcome Jake Hughes into the studio. Good morning, Jake. Good morning. I thought it was Jake Hughes. Jake Hughes is your Purdue's. Her. Her. Yeah, that's how it goes. How are I'm- you? I'm fantastic,
1: doing? Eric. How are you? I'm good. Did
0: you have a good weekend?
1: Yes, I did. I uh, sa- Saturday, I went up to Richmond to shoot a, uh, ironically enough, to shoot video at a gun show hmm. uh, called Showmaster's Gun Show. It was a lot of fun. It well, Part of it was fun. Part of it was not because it was the day after payday, and oh, I saw you all saw these. saw a
0: lot of things you wanted, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. Li- <laughs> it's like,
1: I look but don't touch, and it's like, uh, I really want that M1 Garand, but it's 1,200 bucks.
0: Yeah, uh. yep, that does happen, man. Here's the thing. You know, you what you want to do is get to a point where you've got enough money to buy everything that you want and, of course, everything that you need. You know, first you got to cover your needs. Then you can deal with the wants. I'm at the point now, my wife and I, where we get some of the things we want, but it's mostly things that we need. Yeah. She went to Costco the other day and, and had me put together a list for her of stuff that I thought we need. And I added in new TV on the list, hoping that it might sneak in there. And she'd be like, oh, okay, well, will grab this 78-inch flat screen and put it up on the... No, she caught it. She caught it and she didn't buy it. But what are you going to do? Yeah, it's
1: so, not the type of thing you just do accidentally automatically. Like toilet yeah. paper, paper towels, new TV. Where did
0: TV come from? I'm doing it. Potatoes. So, you know. Listen, I've got a credit card through... Uh, that store that i get like 5% back on purchases so really the tv's paying for itself let's uh, be honest yeah, yeah totally absolutely. So, oh yeah gun shows as a as a someone who is a gun enthusiast i enjoy going out to the range and shooting i own some firearms myself never been to a gun show so what is a gun show like because this is something jake that's in the public mind People think of gun shows as just a bunch of yahoos running around handing each other guns and doing whatever and not having any rules or regulations. What's the experience of actually going to a gun show like for those of us who've never been? It's kind of overwhelming because the way it works is you go in there and there are
1: uh, local vendors, like people who own gun shops, are there with the sign that says, this is our shop, and they lay all the merchandise out there. And uh, so you have people selling you know, new modern firearms here. And then right next to them, there'll be historic firearms. Like I saw a genuine World War II Thompson. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was going for like $20,000. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. sounds
2: about right. Yeah, it sounds about <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: And then there are people who, you know, this also what I learned is it's not just guns. There was a guy selling knives there. And they were selling camping gear and survival equipment. And so it's all just kind of, overlapping uh, areas of interest when it comes to, like, survivalism and right. firearms and knives and things like that.
0: So is it kind of like going into a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shops except with less clothing and fishing stuff and more guns? Yeah, the, the best way to describe it is it's like a
1: flea market for guns mm. in that you have, you know, individual sellers set up their tables all over the place, and you can go and, you know, and the big uh that people need to realize is that you still have to do a background check if you buy from a vendor there. Right, right. Yeah, you still... There's actually... There was a booth there that offered like $50 background checks. But you go there, they'll do your background check for you so you can go to the vendor and just show them the piece of paper saying, hey, I did my background check. Right.
0: Yeah, and those are like uh, annotated and those are legit background checks. The uh, supposed gun show loophole... I remember an interview I did on a previous show that I hosted up in New York with uh, Sean Davis from The Federalist about an article that he wrote about the gun control issue and what people complain about when talking about guns. And he said the gun show loophole isn't really a thing that, yeah, at some point there may have been some places that didn't follow the rules. But he was explaining to me how, no, you still need to do your background checks there. If people aren't following the rules, then that's a problem. But if they're not following the rules, then what difference would a law make to them if you added another one onto the books?
1: But- You're right. Now, I will say, and I don't know any of the details on it, but there were people... Carrying around weapons with little signs saying they were selling them, like it was kind of funny. Like the dude had a rifle sung over his over his shoulder with a little flag sticking out of the barrel saying "this gun is for sale." Now I don't know how individual
0: sales, like they don't
1: have a booth, so yeah, I don't know how that would work exactly. So you can't. Someone
0: couldn't call that the gun show loophole if it's just someone walking around individual sales. I can sell whatever the heck I want to you, and I don't have to follow any federal regulations. Now, there are certain things that are controlled, and firearms are one of them. So, I sell you a gun, that gun is traceable to me, and you use it in a crime, then I'm going to have to answer for, you know, selling yeah. it to you uh, and not having any paperwork showing that or anything like that. It Point-to-point individual sales in any industry, though, are different than they are for... Um, you commercial know. sales. Yeah, commercial sales. So... The $20,000 Thompson, the Tommy gun, as it were, <laughs> sounds amazing. But what did you see there? What was like the one thing that was almost like, you know, it's probably more than I should spend. But what was there something that stuck out to you that you were like, oh, I want that. And I could probably get that. Should I get that? There was
1: a booth <laughs> selling a used Colt in 1911, mm. still in like new condition and it was only charging uh seven hundred dollars which for a 1911 they usually go for over a thousand so look at that i was like you know and then there were also other ones like i'm big on historical firearms like my dad owns an m1 carbine right that i loved to shoot when i was a kid i would love to have one like that but they were going and they were going for about 800 dollars. Which, again, is cheap for a historical firearm.
0: Yeah, depending on... Well, so there were different... The M1 in particular was something where so many models of it were made by so many. I have one from uh, Plainfield, New Jersey. I can't remember the name of the... Maybe just Plainfield Armory or something like that. But those, I looked it up uh, not not too long ago and said like, oh, this would be like $400, $350 if I bought one on the used market. They don't make them new anymore. They haven't for decades. But there are the higher quality ones that are going to be a lot more money and it's uh you know it's a fascinating industry and a fascinating trade and that the majority of weapons if they're well taken care of last for a long time. Oh and yeah, that was can,
1: that was a big market there was restored historical weapons like Springfield 1911s, M1 Garands, mm-hmm. all these, you know, the, I forget the name of it but the rifle that was used prior to the 1911. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. But, yeah, these were restored firearms, and they were going for a lot of money
0: because they're more collector's items than they are actual functional firearms. Yeah, some of them are only collector's items. Some of them are not functional firearms, and people will use them for decorations. I mean, they're awesome old firearms that you can use as a decoration. I know a guy I was stationed with in Italy. He got into the, um, I don't know, is it still called the Society for Creative Anachronism when they're doing, like... Civil War type uh, reenactments. I don't know the name for it, but... S- Society for Creative Anachronism, as I remember it, were the people who dressed up as knights and they would attack each other and they would make their own chain mail and all that stuff, which as a kid I thought was kind of cool. As a teenager, I was like, what a bunch of losers. Now as an adult, I think it's kind of cool again. So, yeah. You know, it goes in cycles. The people who do Civil War reenactments and things like that oftentimes use guns that are either not capable of firing at all or capable of firing blanks. That's another thing that they can do. I don't know. I don't have any decorative firearms, but yeah, I could see at some point in the future. And in, in the right house, they can be a really good look, like yeah. old, a cabiny type place, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is the hard thing about it because I am a firearm enthusiast. It's just I don't have the finances to fuel my hobby. So, like, I have two pistols. I have a Springfield Arms and I have a Taurus. And uh, I used to have a shotgun, but I got rid of it. So it's like I really, really want to collect firearms, I just need a better paying job to do it. Yeah, I mean, they're not,
0: they are not cheap. And that's one of the things, you know, that when people talk about firearms and the discussion on them, I've had many discussions on firearms because one, I kind of know what I'm talking about. And two, I tend to be fairly even keeled and don't get, you know, start screaming at people about things. Even if, uh, even if I disagree with a uh, very few exceptions, like, uh, What's the, uh, oh, jeez, vaccinations. If you're an anti-vaxxer, yes, I will scream at you because you need to be screamed at. You're putting, yes. You're bringing diseases that were eradicated back into the population and killing children. So, yeah, I'll scream at you about that. But guns, guns are something that I can discuss and, and, and enlighten some people on because there are a lot of people in this country, Jake, not as many down where you're from in Texas, but up where <laughs> I'm from in Connecticut, there are a lot of people who've never touched a gun. All they know about guns is what they see in movies, which is why you get politicians, national politicians, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. I remember, I think my most popular ever tweet was a response to her when she was talking about silencers and she was like, this will allow murderers to walk around undetected. And I'm like, no, it won't. What they do is basically lower the decibel rating a little bit. So unless they're inside of like a building with really, really thick walls, you're still going to hear it from outside. You're going to hear it from within the building. But People up there and around other parts of the country think that you put a silencer on a gun and it just goes pew. And that's it. That's, that's like what the they see in
1: movies. Hell, yeah. hell, they see an episode of CSI where a dude used a potato as a, to completely muffle the sound.
0: Oh, yeah. that's And that's legit. Do totally. That. that works. Totally. You know, I did just see, uh, I started watching last night a show on HBO called Barry. You heard about it? I've heard of it, yeah. It's Bill Hader, who's, of course, Saturday Night Live, Stefan, and it was also on the amazing show documentary Now that's still running on IFC. I think they're making a new season of that. Um, It's about a Marine Corps veteran who becomes struggles when he gets out and ends up becoming an assassin. Uh, Not a recommended job for any of our uh, Marines out there who are are looking for work. It's a a comedy show. It's him. It's uh, Fonzie's on there. It's got uh, Stephen Root, the great character actor. They do a lot of interesting things right about the his military veteran aspect, though, like the struggle to readapt after, you know, deploying over to Afghanistan. And this guy has seen a lot of action, killed a lot of people. He ends up in the show. He's an assassin who then gets bit by the acting bug. And I'm not giving anything away. It's very early on. It was in all the ads for the show. He. Then at one point they start talking about the morality of of killing people, and he starts screaming at the people. They're like, "So what does that make me a monster? Because I've killed people, I've done it before, and I was following orders, just like Macbeth was." It's in the context of the play Macbeth that they're talking about it. They do a lot of things right. There are he goes to a party, and some of uh, one of his old Marine buddies comes along and brings a couple other Marines, and they end up like slapping and headbutting each other in the kitchen, doing things that Marines often do. That was accurate as well. One of the things that they get wrong, though, is the firearms where it's like, you know, just pew, pew. he's walking up to a, a, ca- a truck where he's supposed to kill a guy like that's his target. He gets up there and the guy who had just parked the truck moments earlier is dead and there's a bullet hole through the window and he looks up and like 50 yards away, there's a guy with a sniper rifle popped out of the sunroof of a car. How would he have not heard Yeah, a sniper rifle now? A silencer on, say, a 9mm or 45, eh, that cuts the, uh, the decibel level down. I don't know what it's supposed to be 20, 25%, something like that. On a rifle, on a sniper rifle, you have any idea how loud those things are? What the military uses sil- silencers for is it basically masks where the sound is coming from. That's the best use for it because they're shooting from far. Far away, and and if you can mask, if you can lower the decibel levels, it can basically allow the echo to you know make it basically seem like you don't know where you are at all or where they're coming from and all that stuff. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's it was a good show actually. I recommend that I'm about halfway through it now. I watched four or five episodes of the eight that are out last night. Um, but I mean, it sounds more exciting to have gone to a uh, a gun show. You know what I did this weekend? I cleaned the living room on Sunday. On Saturday, what did we do on Saturday? Wait, no, it was raining on Saturday, so we didn't do a whole lot of anything. We were just kind of home and doing stuff. My wife and someone went out to the trampoline place yesterday while I was cleaning the house, uh, cleaning the main floor of the house. A gun show is something that, like, I've always wanted to go to, but I just never have.
1: Yeah, well, because a lot of times there are... It's hard to find. Well, it's not necessarily hard to find one. It's just you don't really think about it. And then for some reason, I've always found when I think about it and go to check, I just missed it. Mm-hmm. Like it'll be the weekend prior to the one I want to go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I And there have been some before, like up when I was living uh, in the Northeast before I moved down here where I'd see a, a billboard as I was riding down the road or something like that. And just never ended up making it to them. Then again, there's a lot of things that I want to go to that I don't. Movies, I can't tell you the last time I went to a movie in the movie theater yeah. that wasn't a kids movie. Yeah. <laughs> kids movies, I've been to a few, but uh, other than that, just I don't, I, I don't get out as much uh, to events as I'd like to. It's all centered around my family now, and I'm not. My five year old did a gun show. That's a recipe for disaster. Don't need that happening. But certainly something that's interesting, and with the conversation that goes on about them. Again, I have a lot of conversations with people who are like, oh, you were in the military, let's talk about guns. Oh, great, okay, sure, let's do that. When they talk about gun shows, I can't really discuss that much because I've never been to one, so maybe I should check out one that's coming up. I They're mean, interesting. How often are they taking place around here? Pretty uh, often, I would think. Right? Yeah,
1: there's uh, there's two more happening this month from Showmasters that are going to be happening in Richmond, hmm. which is about 100 miles away, so yeah, it's, it's, not it's not a bit far. of a drive. But. It's
0: not that far. However, I remember a time I was at Fort Meade for training, and drove from Fort Meade down to Richmond to visit my buddy Wes. It took me four and a half or five hours to get there. Yeah, going
1: down was fine. Coming back traffic was horrible.
0: Yeah. That's that whole beltway thing and that whole, I don't know, you know, I, I come down from the north into here and I don't have to deal with too much traffic. But when I leave 20 minutes later than my normal time, oh, it gets ridiculous. And that, uh, I remember that drive down to Richmond. Thankfully, I had a new car that had, um, um, what do you what do you call it? GPS, or not GPS, uh, satellite radio in it. So I was able to listen to the same radio shows all <laughs> the way down and back. Uh, but yeah, that drive was, oh my God, it was a nightmare. I had him move for an hour and 20 minutes. I was just sitting still. Like, all right, I guess I'll turn the car off and open up the windows. It was not a pleasant day. So Robert Wilkie, Jake, who is the acting VA secretary, has now been nominated to be the full-time VA secretary, where he will... Act like it because he is. I guess right. he won't be acting anymore. Well, our own Matt Saintsing reached out to Vote Vets to find out what they thought about that because Vote Vets, as heard on this show, we had Will Fisher on. He's their uh, director of government relations, and he talked about the 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 reason for the lawsuit. This was in response to uh, you know Am Vets essentially saying like, hey, we understand the reasoning behind the lawsuit. And It may have a legal leg to stand on, but we don't support it. We don't think it's in the best interest of veterans. Uh, as Will told us, like, well, you know what? What it is in the best interest of is America is what he believes and they believe. And that's why, you know, they need they feel they need to stop the president from feeling like he can do anything that he wants to because he didn't follow the normal protocol here. Of course, we had the discussion in the newsroom uh, just last week when Wilkie was nominated about that lawsuit coming from Vote Vets and uh, Democracy Forward and some other organizations as well. That, uh, according to Jonathan Copanger, who's worked at the VA and knows a little bit about, you know, processes for nomination and everything and has looked into it, that as long as someone has served in uh, a position in the government for like a certain number of days, the president can appoint them to any other position in the government, essentially. So, uh, they, he says, he, uh, Jonathan was making the point that like he doesn't know if this lawsuit would even be legally valid uh, because of that. But now, Vote Vets is saying that Wilkie cannot be nominated to lead the agency while serving as acting secretary. They cite five USC three three four five parentheses B parentheses one, and that uh, bars a person from serving as an acting officer should the president nominate uh, such person to the Senate for appointment to that office. Uh, So we talked to Fisher again. You can go and see. uh, You can go and see the interview or not the interview the the story that Matt wrote on. Um, the, the secretary Wilkie uh, lawsuit from boat vets. We wanted to call them up last week and ask them, you guys are going to pull this lawsuit out now. Nope. Doesn't appear. So it appears <laughs> that they're just, they're dead set against it. And listen, they are not. And I had this discussion on social media after we had them on the show where I, I tweeted out a picture of myself with Will and the link to the, uh, the interview and all that stuff uh, and where it came from and said, you know, Hey, you can check this out. You can check out the story. And I got people tweeting at me like, that sounds, they're a political organization, not a VSO and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, they are. They're a political action committee. Guess what? They tell you that they're a political action community up front. It's what they do. I mean, there are people who are out there and just want to get angry about everything. Vote Vets is a very left-leaning political organization, just like Concerned Veterans for America is a very right-leaning veteran organization, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're allowed to do that. I don't agree with everything that either one of them says. I don't agree with most of what one of them says when I look <laughs> at it that way. Um, almost all you can say. So there are, you know, different. It's just it's it's frustrating. You know, it's frustrating, and I understand some of the uh, uh, the anger when people see something like this, where you have a veterans group that's doing something that say. Uh, a lot of people say is not in the best interest of veterans, yet they're still doing it for uh, what a lot of people would say are political reasons. Eh, yeah, I understand the frustration with that, but my God, man, when I start getting direct messages through Twitter telling me about how, like, you know, hey, I'm either a fascist or some super left-wing uh, it you, you Obama, were the Obama, Obama, Obama Buck, Kissing Kool Aid drinker. I can't use the words that I've been uh, called as yeah. far as the uh, particularly the oh you super left wing blah, blah, blah You fill in whatever you want for blah blah, blah. But the uh, the right wing fascist. I get that one too. Can't be one or the other. I mean, it, y- you can't be both. So what is it? I mean, I could be one or the other. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just me. I don't agree with everything that anybody does. But that's what it's gotten to at this point. And I don't like it, particularly within our community, where look at things like Brian Mast and Tulsi Gabbard getting together on burn pits and being able to work together despite political difference for the greater good. That's what it's all about. It's not about yelling at people, oh, you talk to vote vets, oh, you Kool-Aid-drinking Obama sycophant. No, not necessarily. Oh, you talk to Dan Crenshaw, you super right-wing lunatic. Mm, nope. Also not that. That's
1: the problem with our political discourse these days: is that any hint at listening to the other side is tantamount to treason.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really fascinating uh, what's going on there. So it's uh, uh, it's just it's irritating. And now that I see it like personally, I see both sides. The funny thing is, people on both sides will claim that it's just the other ones who are doing it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just them that does that. And then I'll see things. Ugh, you know, I, I've I've stopped comment. You know what I start doing on social media, like on What's Facebook, that? Jake? I'll see things that I want to comment on. Like on a friend's page, he posted something about the girl at Kent State who took the picture with her with the gun for her graduation. Did you see that? Yeah. He posted that and he was like, you know, this is great. She's uh, exercising her freedoms and blah, blah, blah. And now people are threatening her life, and that's not cool. Some of his friends were like, well, she deserves everything she's getting because she had to know what she was doing and blah, blah, blah. Basically saying, like, you did this, you deserve death threats. No, that's not okay. Death threats <laughs> are not. They were also like, well, it's just harassment. I was like, "Yeah, threats against your life harassment. are a little bit more than harassment. But harassment is often criminal in and of itself. So what I do, and maybe people out there can take a uh, take a page from my book on this one, I wrote like a four-paragraph response to it yesterday after I finished cleaning. I'm sitting at home alone watching the Mets game. They won, swept the Diamondbacks, by the way. I wrote this four-paragraph, five-paragraph thing, you know, just firebombing all these people's opinions that, that would say like, oh, she deserved it. And then my friend would comment and be like, wait, you're saying that that she deserves death threats? No. But you, you just said she deserved it. In the comment above that, I write my four or five paragraphs just destroying them, just going scorched earth. <laughs> And then you know what I do? I highlight it, I delete it, and I go to another page. I don't ever post it. I know I thought it, and boy, if they read it, they'd be... There's just no point. And especially for one like yesterday, I don't know these people. I don't. It was two ladies in particular who were both just being hypocrites and saying like, well, no, she doesn't deserve death threats, but she deserves everything she's getting. Well, she's getting death threats. So if you're saying she deserves everything she's getting, then you're saying she deserves death threats. Again, I just, I stopped doing it. I stopped. And also one of them, see what really got me started on is one of them while making what was not a point was making a stupid opposite of a point. That person said, would of, not would of, W-O-U-L-D, apostrophe V-E, the contraction of would and have, that's a word, would space O-F. Oh, bad grammar. Would of. Oh, and yeah, when people talk about grammar Nazis... Guess what? Happy to be one because there is no better way and no faster way for someone to discount your argument and look at you like a dum-dum than you using would of or could of instead of well, would Well, it's
1: kind have. of an ad hominem attack, man. It's like you're not attacking their point, you're attacking their grammar. Maybe they're. We're journalists, man. We're trained in this stuff. Yeah, Maybe but they're here's not. Here's the
0: thing: if you're not smart enough to realize the difference between would of, which is gibberish nonsense, and would have, the contraction would have, uh, you're not smart enough to have an opinion on anything. There are those people who will say that, and you know what? I kind of agree because some of these people, you're in your 30s and you still don't know the difference between would have and would of. Oh boy. It's it's infuriating to me. That got me started on it, but yeah, we're just getting started here on this show. <laughs> Melissa Bryant, IAVA Chief Policy Officer coming on here in just a moment. We're going to talk about Robert Wilkie and oh, so much more taking place in the world of veterans. It's the Morning Briefing Monday edition. Back after this. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. It's our headline because it's what we do. We are looking at the veteran experience from top to bottom, inside and out, looking at legislative issues, looking at benefits available to you, looking at programs, looking at entertainment, looking at things thing that's just kind of cool. All of that is available on ConnectingVets.com. And also, the best way to be kept abreast of what we're doing on that website, Follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Army. She's also one of those important folks working over at Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. She is basically the person that you want to talk to about policy and legislation and anything from IAVA, Miss Melissa Bryant. Melissa, how are you this morning? I'm wonderful this morning. How are you doing? Say that again.
2: I'm wonderful this morning. How are you doing?
0: And then a little bit closer to the microphone.
2: I'm wonderful this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing very well.
0: A little inside radio here. I just had to actually uh, delete something out because, well, we pre-record some of these interviews. uh, Breaking down the fourth wall there. That's my (laughs) own fault. But, of course, Melissa, you are keeping an eye on everything that involves veterans when it comes to uh, legislation and policy of the politicians in the Washington, D.C. area and— In other places around the country, because, of course, IAVA members are all around the country. There are hundreds of thousands of them paying attention on the national level and the local level. Of course, this week we've seen a ton of big national news as far as legislation. Let's start off with one that IAVA was instrumental in. There was a press conference uh, that took place last week now with... Congressman Mast and Congresswoman Gabbard uh, about burn pit legislation, which is something that uh, finally it looks like there's going to be some positive movement on. We've got two veterans uh, working on that together in Congress. Tell us a little bit about this, uh, the press conference, what they said there and uh, what we're looking at moving forward with this burn pit legislation.
2: We're so grateful to have Congresswoman Matt Gabbard and Congressman Mast working on this. Two prominent post nine eleven 11 vets pushing for an issue that is so central to what I think every post 11 vet can re- uh, relate to, and that's burn pits. I don't think anyone I've heard a story from doesn't know about a burn pit or doesn't talk about even the other airborne toxins or other nasty stuff that we all dealt with when we were downrange um, or maybe even sometimes con- uh, CONUS. And so the Burn Pits Accountability Act, what it does is it, it holds DOD accountable. What it does is start to track on the DOD side what you, where you've been exposed, when you've been exposed, and making sure that, that data gets into the burn pit registry. And it's an opt-out of the registry rather than what it is now, and that's an opt-in to the VA's registry. So this is a really big step. It's an incremental step, and we know that, but it's a big step. It's critical toward moving to hopefully what we won't relive like our parents did with Agent Orange and, and our, our fathers and, and mothers who were exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam That was a 16-year fight to getting that to a presumptive illness that was given disability compensation. And so we want to make sure that we don't have to fight as long as our fathers did. We want to make sure that we're getting this through now and that we're tracking it now. Sadly, we're still there, especially in Afghanistan. We're still exposed. And so we want to make sure that DOD is held accountable for that.
0: When you talk about that 16 years, even longer than that, if you think about the Blue Water Navy Mm -hmm. Agent Orange issues, which are still ongoing, there's legislation now Working its way through that may finally address those who served on ships where they were you know, loading Agent Orange onto aircraft, where there were plumes of it coming from the shore out to them in the ocean. Uh, they are still not receiving benefits, but we're finally seeing some movement on that. This burn pit legislation recently announced, recently started, so... You know, when you look at it, when you sit down and talk with the uh, the members of Congress that are involved, Mast, Gabbard, and, and the other folks who are, uh, you know, working on it from your community and others, what's the timeline looking like? I mean, do you have a best case, worst case scenario for it?
2: Well, our best case scenario is getting this enacted into law this year. So right now we already have, um, as of its introduction, five co-sponsors. It's bipartisan. It's something that everyone we talk to is, is really behind. We have 24 uh, veterans organizations who have now coalesced around this um, to include those from like Vietnam Veterans of America and, and Burnpits 360 and other folks who are really, you know, leading the charge on this and have looked at it for going back 50 years. And so, with this movement that's moving forward, we think it has a really strong chance of being enacted into law. There's many ways in which we're looking to do that um, through several must pass bills as well as looking at uh, pushing this through as a standalone. But we see the movement, and that's the big thing is that. You have the right folks who are championing it at the right time. And we can really see this passing by the end of 2018. Worst case scenario, I don't even want to think about because that would mean starting over. And anytime we have to start over, it's setting our entire generation back.
0: It absolutely is. And this is something that is certainly important uh, for them to at least keep track of. I mean, there are, uh, it seems Obvious to any of us who ever saw a burn pit and ever heard of any of the things that were going in there Just heard a story the other day of uh, the 4th of July Some Marines throwing batteries in there as they would Mm -hmm. function as fireworks They would get a little bit of a a sparkle coming out of there (laughs)
2: Marines will be Marines
0: (laughs) So it seems obvious to all of us that this would be an issue There's still medical research being done on it Again, people can opt into this list, whereas this would create it being automatic it seems also obvious that it should be a no-brainer to get through and get approved by congress if that's really what this is about is creating that registry that's automatic for those who were uh, exposed to these things what could keep it from happening is it cost is it going to be something that's rather expensive or no
2: no that's the beauty of this bill is that it's not low it's not high cost in fact there's very low cost it's it's a matter of using what's already there that's already being reported it's using the periodic health assessments that everyone does annually it's using the post-deployment health assessments and then also as you're separating through the transition assistance program through all the services it's checking those blocks at at each one of those stoplights think of those as your stoplights going through where they're saying where were you deployed what could you have been exposed to and as you're doing that then it's starting to build that evidence and it helps to be able to understand when you're a veteran and you've crossed over and you've taken off the uniform to be able to show what you may or may not have been exposed to to the VA. And um, this is something that really goes a long way in being able to, instead of you having to come in with a mountain of forms, right. which is currently the process, you know, to file that claim, you have that ammunition with you.
0: And that's what it's all about, setting up our veterans for success, even if it's a success in dealing with a medical issue, making right. sure that they're not behind the eight ball and it makes me think back. I keep I keep remembering when I was a kid, talking to the VFW members in the area where I grew up, who were in the uh, the first Gulf War and the medical issues that some of them faced. The guys who were trying to cap off those burning oil wells that we remember from the Kuwaiti right. oil fields. Right. The Gulf War illness, as it was called, Gulf War mm-hmm. syndrome, was something that it took a long time to get addressed, and in many cases, is still kind of not been addressed. We keep having these. Uh, these repetitions of us not learning from previous mistakes. Do you think of this as us actually getting ahead of the game as compared to the issues that we've had in the past with Agent Orange and the Gulf War issues? I
2: think we're trying to get ahead of the game. I mean, the burn pits issue, the the, the alarm was sounded years ago. I mean, this is really 10 years in the making, right? I think it was 2007 when people first started saying, this just doesn't seem right. Why is there a constant stench, constant? um, it, It felt actually like the air was heavy. When you were, um, where I was serving in Iraq, and I know in Afghanistan, but you mixed that with the dust particulates, and it was just a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting ahead of the curve, but only in the sense that we're 17 years into this. So sadly, when you compare that to Vietnam, where it took them 16 years after the Vietnam War ended to get this as a presumptive uh, condition, and so we're kind of matching out around the same time frame, right. you know, at that point. So, um, but we are drawing upon those lessons learned. And just as we stand with our Vietnam brethren, you know, you mentioned the Blue Water Navy uh, that's you've mentioned. Um, we already talked about Agent Orange and, and Gulf War Syndrome. We stand with all of those who came before us, and now they're standing with us. And they're giving us their lessons learned. They're giving right. us their playbook and how we can move forward in this and really do something at this point. Because there's, like you said, the research and everything is great, but we know it's a problem. We yeah. just need to do something about it
0: it is and it's one of those things like as you said the smell and the stench it reminded me of uh you know i, I, I doing being around an incinerator being mm-hmm. around something at a dump where they would burn you know the stuff that they they wasn't going to um wasn't going to dissolve on its own essentially the military was using it for even more than that it was an all-encompassing like what's that paper yep. throw it in there medical yeah. waste throw it in there what is it throw it in. It, there was very little that they wouldn't throw in a burn pit uh, while we were over there and while we still are over there in Afghanistan specifically, something that certainly needs to be addressed in this new legislation coming from Congresswoman Gabbard, Congressman Mass, two Army veterans themselves, and of course with the backing of IAVA and many other veterans groups, uh, hopefully we'll address it uh, in the near future. As you said, you're hopeful this year. Let's hope. I mean, it seems, again, like a no-brainer. If it's not going to be expensive, it's going to help out the military and veterans who's going to vote against it? That's the question that you have to have. Now, uh, of course, some people voted, didn't vote, but chose to remove some veterans items from the omnibus spending bill when it went through recently. We've talked about this in the past. Well, for the political reasons in that, which we're not going to get into again, everybody knows why things were pulled out of there so that people could vote against the bill and not appear to be voting against veterans. The items that were pulled out have basically been included in the Mission Act and a couple other things that are now Moving through with large support, just as the uh, they would have had in the omnibus spending bill. How is IAVA feeling about the changes that will come with the Mission Act, specifically to choice program and extending caregiver benefits to, uh, while IAVA is Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, there are plenty that were injured beforehand, disabled for things that happened beforehand that aren't available or are eligible for those benefits. So uh, tell me, IAVA stands on the Mission Act.
2: We support the Mission Act. We stand with our brothers and sisters. Uh, we, we joined the letter of, I believe, 38 VSOs and MSOs who wanted to see the Mission Act go through. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Um, it, it is imperfect. And um, we still remain skeptical of the choice program. One of the reasons why we signed on to this bill is that this bill effectively sunsets choice, hmm. and it consolidates all the community care programs. It allows for the expansion of caregivers, which we support for our pre-9-11 brethren. And so I think that there's... Um, a lot of goodness in this bill. And, and like all bills, it's, it's 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 wildly imperfect in many ways, but we want to remain skeptical, but yet optimistic and continue to work with lawmakers to make it, to implement it in a, in the right way and work with the VA to implement it in the right way.
0: And it's going to cost $52 billion for right. all the things that are in there and they don't have that money yet. So they all want right. it to go through. It's looking like, uh, you know, it's going to be passed through. Everybody's going to be happy with it. It's leaning that way now until the president signs it. Nothing is final, but Uh, if it does get through, then they need to find out where the money is going to come from. And, you know, that's the way it kind of works with legislation. It's that catch-22 there. But, uh, you know, overall, it seems that it's got a lot of support in the veteran community, in the VSO community, even those who are uh, skeptical of some things in it, like Mm -hmm. apparently IAVA is, which, hey, there's nothing wrong with a, a healthy amount of skepticism. Do you think that this is going to be a benefit in that we now, three months from now, won't have to hear Oh, they're going to shut down the funding for the VA and the choice program. Blah, 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 blah. That's been a recurring theme here in Washington, D.C. Is that at least one of the benefits we can take away from this?
2: <laughs> it, it is, you know, at least in that regard. Um, it, it does take the pressure off If this is, you know, if all goes well, the desired end state is for this to be signed into law by Memorial Day. And the president has said that that's what he would do uh, if it makes it through the Senate by then. And so um, it alleviates that pressure. Uh, we are skeptical of, you know, how. The choice program continues through this bill. It allows for $5.2 billion to the choice program so that other regulatory items can be established during that time frame. So it's bridge funding. Um, And we're always skeptical of any expansion of of something that is already problematic as such as the choice program. But we're going to remain optimistic. We're going to stand with our brothers and sisters and we're going to continue to work with the VA as they implement this. And hopefully this alleviates some pressure, um, but it's not a panacea.
0: We're speaking with Melissa Bryant. She's the chief policy officer at Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Speaking of the VA, recent news, Robert Wilkie, who was the acting secretary of the VA, has now been nominated to be the full-time secretary of the VA. Of course, you guys are a VSO. You're not in the business of uh, of supporting or, or not supporting anybody. But of course, you do have your opinions on these things. Hearing the name Robert Wilkie for VA secretary, I mean, how does IAVA feel about that?
2: Uh, Well, we haven't polled our members yet. You know that that's a hallmark of what IAVA does is to pulse our membership and ask them, how do you feel about it? We did it with Secretary Shulkin. We did it with Ronnie Jackson when he was the nominee. And so we're probably going to do the same thing with with, with under acting Secretary Wilkie. Um, He does have some positives, I can say right now, in that um, he's obviously in the position, has been for the past two months or so since uh, Secretary Shulkin uh, was ousted and um he obviously comes in with a depth and breadth of knowledge from his position at DOD where he was the undersecretary for personnel and readiness um he himself knows the military community very well um and and comes from military legacy family he obviously understands the legislative side from his work with Tom Tillis um uh, with Tom Tillis, I should say and so I know that he has a lot of right ingredients to um to work toward this, especially the the piece that we harped on when um, Admiral Jackson was the nominee and that's the bureaucratic management experience that's understanding a large organization like no other And so if you can figure out the puzzle palace at the P- at the Pentagon then you can hopefully figure out the VA too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Robert Wilkie, of course, as you mentioned from an army family, his father, uh, retired as lieutenant colonel from the United States Army. That's Robert Wilkie Sr., who passed away last year. He was born in Frankfurt. He was born on a military installation, grew up mostly on Fort Bragg. So this is someone who's intimately familiar with the military. Uh, that's one of the things that people say they want to look for in a VA secretary. So he certainly got that Got a lot of the government experience, as you mentioned, being involved in DOD. So I, I think at least in those aspects, as you said, kind of a positive in those two things. What are his feelings on everything that the VA does and on the choice program and all the things that you know are somewhat controversial with different groups looking at them different ways? I mean, we had vote vets in here a couple weeks ago talking about their lawsuit to remove Wilkie as the acting VA secretary. Which, you know, one of the things I asked him is, hey, what if he gets promoted to full time? What do you do then? <laughs> and they kind of said we're going to see the lawsuit through to the end no matter what. So, you know, there are people who will not be happy about this. Right. There are people that will be happy about this. Uh, have you gotten any feeling yet in his time as acting secretary over the last, what, month, two months or so on, on what type of person uh, he is and how he feels about the veteran community and what the VA is doing?
2: I can say I personally have participated in roundtables with uh, the acting secretary. Um, First, when he was undersecretary at the Pentagon, I participated in a roundtable earlier this year where um, we found him very level-headed, very passionate for the military community, really understanding of what was needed, um, especially in his capacity and understanding personnel and readiness. And obviously readiness is the number one priority of SecDef right now. On the VA side, he also, uh, within his first couple of weeks of being in that position, invited the veteran service organizations over and, um, you know, had the large groups and not limited to the big six, but had um, several groups in to talk about priorities, talk about next steps. At the time, there were a lot of unknowns. Um, There was um, uncertainty of whether he would be the nominee or anyone else. In fact, he didn't even put that out there. But um, he was welcoming and and that that I can appreciate that I can appreciate on behalf of IAVA's membership and that we were in that room and at the table and able to converse with him and share what our top priorities were. Burn pits being one of them, which I hope he can also appreciate from coming from the DOD side of things and from coming from Fort Bragg.
0: He's also, as we mentioned, the son of a career army man, his father, a lieutenant colonel passed away in 2017 at the age of 79. So this is someone who's probably, via his father's interactions, quite familiar with how things work at the VA from the family perspective anyway. I mean, I I would imagine, particularly considering that he worked in DOD at the time and everything, he would have been involved in what his father was going through and any VA Mm -hmm. care that he received. So that could be a a positive as well, couldn't it?
2: It could be. It could be. And I mean, I think by and large... The biggest reservation that folks had over uh, Admiral Jackson was the fact that he lacked the management experience, that Mm. he did not understand running a large, or I should say he didn't understand, but he did not have the experience in running a large organization like the VA. And so I think the biggest plus um, in in the, or biggest uh, mark in the plus column, rather, for Mr. Wilkie is that he will have that experience coming out of the Pentagon. Mm.
0: He's also a lawyer by trade. He mm-hmm. has his uh, JD from Loyola University in New Orleans, has his master's of uh, judicial, blah, 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 that whole he's thing. A,
2: he's ex- incredibly Georgetown, smart. <laughs> you know, U.S. He, he, Army
0: War College. He has his master's he, from He's there.
2: a 400-pound brain, as we would say in the Army. <laughs> hey,
0: and that can be a good thing. And with some of the issues that we have at the VA, that might be kind of what we need over there. I mean, some of these same mistakes and same issues that keep on coming up and keep mm-hmm. plaguing the VA that would seem to be eminently fixable, And a lot of people involved in that job, a lot of people sitting in that job who haven't quite been able to get that done. So maybe someone with that kind of experience is what we need in that position.
2: One would hope. I mean, again, I think IVA is going to want to pulse our membership. We're going to want to understand more of what they want to see. Um, I think I've talked about the pillars of what we look for before out of our last poll um the top 3 issues that people look for was healthcare manage or healthcare experience management experience and um veteran experience military experience and so he checks two of the three again which seems to be the combination we seem to never get all three but i don't know if all three really exist out there and so um i think that he definitely has a good shot at being successful um we hope that he continues to seek the advice and counsel of the VSOs because that's what we're here for, is to provide him that advice and counsel and give him the pulse of our community. And um, really, the big thing that has plagued the VA has been not having someone who can be steady at the helm. And, and that's what they need is that someone who can just keep things calm and right the ship. And, and right now, it's rudderless. And I think that he can be, if he can just keep that calm, he'll be successful there.
0: Now, of course, IAVA is going to pull their membership because that's how you guys figure out what the membership feels about everything. You don't just assume that they feel one way or another. You actually go out and ask them, and we're speaking with IAVA's chief policy officer, Melissa Bryan, Army veteran herself. There are going to be people who say they don't like Robert Wilkie for one reason, and that reason is... Well, he was nominated by President Trump, and there are people who don't believe that President Trump is capable of doing anything that is not uh, you know, just the worst possible decision. There will be people who answer that way because of that. Speaking of President Trump, just recently learned that he was going to donate his first quarter salary of 2018 to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So that is $100,000, which by the way, $400,000 along with the free house, along with The cars driving everybody there, the basically (laughs) servants everywhere you go, they're taking care of you. (laughs) Certainly seems like uh, a pretty good gig, although the stress and that we see everyone who goes in when they leave four or eight years later looks about 50 years older. So there are drawbacks. But, uh, you know, hearing that he's going to do that, this $100,000, which... Okay, $100,000 is a drop in the bucket when it comes to the caregiver programs, but just seeing him being able and willing to do that, uh, how does IAVA feel about that? I mean, that's a pretty cool thing that he's doing, I think.
2: Well, we don't have a position on that uh, per se, but I mean, I I think it's symbolic. Um, I think it's symbolic of him being able to um, support and literally put his money where his mouth is and to uh, contribute to an issue that is near and dear to the veteran community. So we don't have an official position on that, but it's symbolic.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's, that may be all that it is, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a symbolic gesture that's not been made by any president before. So that's an interesting thing. And of course, when you get into politics and particularly when you talk about that guy, there are going to be (laughs) people who, Love everything he does, hate everything he does, and then those sitting in the middle like me, who are like, yeah, some things are okay, some things not so okay. So,
2: and I, then what you just said right there is how IAVA's membership pretty much falls. Yeah. And so, I mean, every time we pulse our members, it's yeah, this is okay, that's not okay, and so yeah. that that's the post 911 generation, I think.
0: I think it is, and I think the polls that we've seen of uh, you know Military Times did a poll of the military; they have access to the ability mm-hmm. to do that. Where his support in the active duty military tends to be a little bit higher than it is um, in the general population and it, not like he's got 90% approval ratings in the military, but it tends to be more like, you know, some people think like, yeah, some of what he's doing is good, some of what he's doing is not so good. Uh, it does seem that the military is able to take a little bit more of an even-handed approach towards that. Well, we've been speaking with Melissa Bryant. She is Chief Policy Officer at IAVA, Army Veteran, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and of course, those polls and everything else basically emanate from the IAVA website to the membership and people signing up. So, IAVA is a free membership VSO, everyone who's eligible is able to join free of cost. Where do they go if they want to find out more about what it means to join and what they can do to join and, and how they can get involved? And also to find out about the great things that you and your team are doing when it comes to policy and legislation.
2: Absolutely. Go to org And there's tons of drop downs there. But when you go there, you'll see a button for how to join. You'll see IAVA in Washington. You'll see all the great work that my office does here out of D.C., and uh, you'll also see links to social. So please follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. That really is the the key, the linchpin to reaching our community. Uh, the post 911 generation, as you know, we're very much into the social media cycle. And so check us out on Twitter. You'll get the links to everything we've done to include our burn Pits presser last week.
0: Yeah, and there's been a lot going on there. I mean, there was just uh, last week there was a, a press conference with uh, and Gabbard there, and IAVA was there. Paul, mm-hmm. of course, the founder of IAVA. Quick question for you as we finish up. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Not an IAVA member. Tell me why I should. What's it going to do for me to become an IAVA member?
2: It is always good to connect with your fellow brethren. And so I think that when you become an IAVA member, you talk to people who understand the issues the way that we uniquely process them in our generation. You and I just talked about how we fall in the middle We see some things great, some things bad, but it's good to be able to commune with other people who see things the way that we do. We're not a monolithic community. And so we have our virtual veterans hall through IAVA. Again, it's free. You sign up, you're able to readily connect with folks. And then we have vet togethers that happen throughout Nationwide, where local leaders stand up and say, hey, let's go hit up a game. Let's go hit up the bar. Let's do whatever we want to do to where we come together as a community. And it's not quite in the formulaic way in which we do it. And so I think that that's the unique benefit you get from joining IAVA and why I was a member before I was staff.
0: Well, there you go. You heard it right there from someone who uh, went the membership way and then ended up working for the organization. Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. You can find them at iava.org. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Stick around. More of the show to come after this. Helping military
1: veterans stay connected.
0: We make it easy.
1: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Vets.
0: Welcome back to The Morning Briefing here at ConnectingVets.com connecting vets every day. That's in our slogan because it's what we do and we do it through a variety of platforms. So of course we have the website which has stories, audio, video, and social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. little click on your mouse, a little tap on your phone, and you are going to be living your best veteran life. Getting the information that you need to know, the information that you should know, and some information that you might want to know. Like my story from a couple days ago about Monsters Among Us, veteran serial killers. Did you know that Jeffrey Dahmer served in the United States Army? And get ready for this, creepiest part, he was a medic. There are people who probably had their blood drawn by Jeffrey Dahmer before he started killing people. Yeah, let that rattle around inside your head for just a moment. So give us a follow at Connecting Vets Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. That's the best way to be kept up to date on what we're doing. And, of course, at least 10, 15 times a day. Go check out ConnectingVets.com, where you're going to find us talking to an amazing variety of veterans, doing an amazing variety of things, including our next guest. His name is Chris White, and he is the CEO of Freedom Hard. Chris, good morning, and welcome to the Morning Briefing. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Still doing well after I told you about Jeffrey Dahmer being a medic in the Army?
3: I'm not so sure how to, how to <laughs> receive that, actually.
0: <laughs> that's, that's some new information for me and a lot of people. Now, let's give people some information on you. Who is Chris White? Where are you from? When did you join? And what did you do while you were in?
3: Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm a Houston, Texas born, born and raised, uh, out here in Texas. I, uh, I joined the Marines back in 2004 and just did my four years and got out. So I got out January, 2008. My, uh, <laughs> I was always in the right place at the wrong time for, for my military service. My, my, my trade, well, my military occupational specialty was traffic management, but I never really ended up doing it. Um, Basically, when I went overseas to go to uh, Okinawa, Japan, I got uh, attached to a whole bunch of different uh, detail stuff that was happening, just just being in the right place at the wrong time. And I did anything from uh, auxiliary security forces, basically a support function to back up the military police in the event of like a riot would, would happen, um, to traf- uh, basically uh, customs and immigration, safety, um, and then I went and... Got stationed over in Paris Island for my last year and a half, and uh when I checked in, I didn't really have much experience doing my mOS and so they basically put me doing other detail um stuff over in uh, Paris Island so where I would go back and forth and teaching marines on how to shoot different weapons on the rifle range and stuff like that.
0: Wow. So, really a a varied career. And one of those things that we hear from a lot of people who served that joined up to do one thing, get their MOS or their rating, whatever the case may be, and then end up kind of doing a variety of other things and never really working within their job. Sounds like that was the case with you. Uh, Think back to the time after those four years come to an end, your transition from the Marine Corps to the veteran world, to civilian life. What was that like for you? What do you remember most about that period of time?
3: Very, very different from anyone that I've ever met in terms of comparing or contrasting my experience to theirs. So, you know, when I left, I left South Carolina, I remember driving back to Texas, literally only knowing one thing about what my future was. And that was, I was going to do anything but go back into the Marine Corps again. (laughs) And so I had not a clue as to what, uh, you know, what was in front of me, what I was going to do. Um, so I went back to Texas and had not a clue about the veteran community or support system or even the VA or anything like that. I didn't know anything like that. Um, and so I did what, pretty much 50% of uh, probably anyone leaving the service that comes back to the state of Texas, especially Houston is you basically go into the medical field or you go into the the energy industry. And so since we're both the medical and the oil capital of the world, that's pretty much your two biggest platforms to to find yourself uh, in. So, so I continued doing my education and uh, I found myself working in the, in the oil field basically as I was uh, continuing my undergrad and then, um, and then uh, starting starting my career within the, the energy industry over here um, until I finished my MBA. It wasn't until after I finished my MBA to where actually I started getting involved into the veteran community and actually discovering what the veteran community was all about. And ironically enough, Houston is known as the number two city across the entire United States for having such a dominant um, presence within the veteran community.
0: Wow, and that's really interesting stuff and it's 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 often the case it seems that those who serve sometimes need a little bit of break from being around those people that they served with, where it might take a couple of years before they want to, I don't know, maybe join a VSO like the Legion, the VFW, vets, or something like that, or just get involved with, uh, with the veteran charities that are out there and the things that they're doing. Is that kind of how it was for you? Did you need, after four years of being a hard-charging gung-ho Marine, did you need a little bit of separation from that military time when you got out?
3: I don't know if it was a matter of need or just found myself separated from the environment as a whole. I just was focused on myself and my career for a good six, seven years or so. Uh, and, and and just focused on that and didn't really have anything else that came into the picture, whether you labeled it as a distraction or, or anything like that. I mean, I just focused on myself and, uh, and really just kind of, you know, uh, you know, moved full speed ahead to to do some of the things that I wanted to do before I started to get involved. I, I guess it was kind of by accident um, attending some some luncheons um, and started to figure out. Oh, there's a whole bunch of Marine veterans out there. I didn't even call myself a veteran for quite some some time, actually. In fact, that was a term that was. What I perceived as if if you called yourself a veteran, I was thinking Vietnam era you know, before I called myself a veteran, something like that right. so it it took some time for me to get familiar with some of the language and the fact that there's there's literally another version of me and my counterparts right around the corner from just about every corner in Houston, you know
0: yeah, and really a, a variety of the veteran population that includes the Vietnam vets, the Korean vets the World War II vets who've gone through everything that we've gone through just decades earlier that are really uh, a great place for you to be able to draw information and experience from we're speaking with Chris White, former Marine and current CEO of Freedom Hard now Chris, when you think back on that time and you think back of any difficulties that you had, any struggles that you had, if there is, you know, a young Marine soldier, sailor, Airman Coastie who's finishing up their first tour and deciding to get out, what's the biggest piece of advice you think you could give them about preparing to move into the, the civilian world?
3: Uh, my biggest piece of advice would be something along the lines of don't think that you have to find your next step within your career right away. Uh, it's okay to take some time to figure it out. I went through quite a bit of time on my own, just going through your typical trial and error, figuring mostly what I did not want to do versus what it was that I wanted to do. I had to I had to make a couple of wrong turns along the way and say, okay, this is not for me. This is definitely what I don't want to do, and that's okay. I guess it's it's too easy to be discouraged by going through two or three iterations of those and figuring out, man, I'm just struggling too much. And I missed, the I missed the military life too much. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So many of us go through so many of those wrong turns just to figure out what it is that we don't want to do. And just, that's just a part of life sometimes. And it was definitely a part of my, uh, my history and my path, uh, just to figure out what, what it is that you don't want to do. And so my biggest piece of advice would be like, something along the lines of saying, Look, you don't have to you don't have to figure out what your next step is right away. It's okay to take some time to figure that out.
0: Certainly good advice there that, you know, there is no rush. And I know it seems like a lot of people after spending, you know, maybe four years in the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, they get out and they they feel like they're behind the eight ball, you know, that they're somehow behind those who went directly into college. And we, we've been talking about this over the last, well, several months about how you kind of gain things in the military that can be useful for you in the civilian world that uh, somebody went straight into college out of high school doesn't have. Is that something you'd agree with? Oh yeah,
3: I would agree with that for sure. You know, when I got out, um, most of my my uh, my peers that I knew from you know high school, I guess, uh, were already either finishing up their their undergrad or getting close to finish even their their master's degree. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I'm only <laughs> I'm only just around the corner from my associates at this time. I better I better you know double down and, and figure out how to cross that finish line much faster than than my my previous pace was to catch up to them but you know it's it's a different path uh you come from a different uh a different path and whether you you collide with them uh to being on par with them down the road or not i mean it's it's, it's really irrelevant and we get caught up too much trying to compare ourselves to our peers when you've already differentiated yourself from your peers a long time before then whenever you decided to, to sign on that that dotted line so uh it's too easy to get caught up on trying to get Trying to play catch up for wherever your previous peers are, uh, in time, whenever you, you turn in your, your uniform, you know?
0: Well, and it sounds like you've caught up pretty well. I mean, you were just telling us about earning your MBA. And of course, as I've mentioned, Chris White is the CEO of Freedom Hard. So Chris, tell us about the journey to Freedom Hard and where that really began in earnest and how you got to where you are now with the company.
3: Yeah, it, uh, so it basically is a byproduct of how um, I was able to turn some negative experiences into some significant motivation. So uh, 2016, for me personally, uh, came to a crashing halt. Um, let's see, November 17th, 2016, I was basically stabbed in the back by my business partner at the time, which was six weeks before I was supposed to get married. And 30 hours before I was supposed to get married, my fiance and her two kids decided uh, to leave leave Texas and drive back to South Carolina because she decided she didn't want to get married. And so there I was uh, pretty much in one of my darkest hours figuring out, okay, um, life isn't really turning out to be the way that I thought it was supposed to be with my current situation. And so I basically ran away to Mexico on a one-way ticket, spent just under two weeks there came back and then i I spent uh, about six weeks drinking all the alcohol from the wedding that I paid for that never took place <laughs> and one buddy of mine said chris you need to you need to pull your head out of your ass basically and and um you know I think you should I, should, I think you should get into marketing and I don't come from a marketing background, and I didn't really know what he meant by that, but I kind of sat on it for about three or four days and one day one night uh february 28th last year i was in front of my computer and i said okay i'm going to create a brand and that brand is now known as freedom hard
0: and tell the people who don't know what freedom hard is exactly what you guys are about because there are a lot of veteran-owned companies out there who seem to be very specialized that focus on one thing freedom hard seems to be uh, dipping some toes in quite a few pools
3: oh absolutely so while most of I mean, people say the word competitor. These guys aren't really my competitors, and I'll, I'll I'll explain why. So, Freedom Heart is not known as a product. You know, we don't we don't specialize in a product. We have we have a bunch of products, but Freedom Heart will always be known as a brand. It's a brand that stands for using humor as a platform to display patriotism, and so. Why humor is because humor is very therapeutic. It's a coping mechanism that anyone can use to at least get through whatever struggles they might be going through. It doesn't matter if you're a veteran. It doesn't matter if you're a civilian or not. Whether you suffer from post-traumatic stress, isolation, loneliness, uh, family issues, drug overdose, alcoholism, it doesn't matter. If I can make you laugh for five, ten minutes at least for that five ten minutes, your mind is in a better place than in whatever dark hole you might've found yourself into being. And if I can use that by also gearing it towards using it to uh, display patriotism, then to me, it's the ultimate win-win. So a lot of the brand content that you might find uh, on social media, for example, is usually something that's very uh, hilarious, right? It'll be something that makes you laugh, but it's also very patriotic in nature, Along the way, we've also commercialized some products, anything from any, any kind of apparel items to cigars, coffee, beard oil, and then we're about two weeks out from commercializing our own whiskey line as well.
0: Oh, wow. So really uh, getting involved in all sorts of aspects of the business world. Uh, what's been the biggest hurdle for you as coming into this? Uh, as you said, you have your MBA, you, you did the schoolwork, then you actually get involved in starting this company kind of on your own. What's been the biggest hurdle for you? What was the most difficult part of starting Freedom Heart?
3: I think the starting point itself was was the hardest point. uh, So my background is I'm very used to working in corporate America. So I climbed the corporate ladder uh, all the way from the ground level to senior management through executive managing uh, multi-million dollar budgets, uh, being in charge of an entire department of 41 people uh, where it's the way that you wanted to look at that was something very mature that I then became in charge of. So I didn't really have to create something from, from the ground up for me to own, as opposed to Freedom Hard. There was literally nothing whenever I said, okay, I'm now going to step into the realm of being an entrepreneur and I'm going to create something from absolutely nothing. I always found myself in a position landing into something that already created, and then I was in a position to make it a little bit more efficient and better. But for whenever I started Freedom Hard, there was nothing that existed, literally nothing at all. And I had to build it from the ground up. And so it's a lot of risk. Um, it's its a its a significant amount of risk because I, I put my, my heart and soul into it and, and a whole bunch of other things as well. So there was nothing that I could shape and then start to tell people, this is what I'm trying to do. I mean, I, I'm literally holding my hands up and there's nothing there uh, whenever I started February 28th last year. And so you know, taking on the uh, the lifestyle of an entrepreneur, building something from the ground up, you really have a whole bunch of naysayers. You have a whole bunch of people say, you yeah, know, this, I don't know, you know, you're trying to enter a saturated market. I don't see how this is going to be successful. So you, you, n- you not only have to start something from nothing, you actually don't really have too much support uh, in your corner as well whenever you embark on this new venture, you know.
0: Absolutely. And, and that is something that we've heard from several veteran entrepreneurs who've gone out there and started things on their own and, and in some cases have actually had fits and starts. You know, they tried something and it didn't work out. They had to adapt and overcome, go back to the drawing board. Uh, what would you say your experience has been with Freedom Heart? I mean, were you, uh, have you been pretty lucky since starting it or have there been those kind of you know big roadblocks that you needed to figure out a way around?
3: Oh, absolutely! It's 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 the best and the and the worst of both worlds, actually. So there's been some partnerships in the beginning that it they you know I looked at them like oh wow this is great I'm already getting this opportunity and then it turned out to not be a good fit for whatever reason and that's both good and bad on my part, good and bad on their part as well. It just for whatever reason didn't work out and then then I've been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to where. I'm already in a position with less than one year after being incorporated to where I have, um, you know, my own coffee line, my own cigar line, and we're two weeks out from having my own whiskey line. And whenever I have these type of conversations with other people, they're thinking, "Wait, you only incorporated how long ago?" And it, you know, when they hear that it's been less than a year, and they're like, "Holy crap, this is this is incredible! How how are you already up to this level already?" And so, um, you know, it it it's it's not it's all it's not all you know positive things it's, it's a whole bunch of negative experiences that we had to go through a whole bunch of lessons learned best practices uh there were some some bridges that had to be burned of course and then um that's also a credit to being able to adapt and overcome being able to manage change is probably the biggest component of of everything that's kind of led up to this point so um yeah i mean it's it's not all it's not all <laughs> unicorns and 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 nice roses uh basically uh along the way i mean From someone to look at the brand and and look through the lenses of just what you see on social media, you might think that, but behind the scenes, it's, it's way more complex than that.
0: It certainly is. And that's certainly something, you know, I I hear you talking about the ability to adapt to change, the ability to figure that out. How important do you think your ability to draw on your time in the Marine Corps has been in in functioning as a CEO and looking at things like that? I mean, every Marine, every sailor, soldier, airman knows you have a plan. And then the first thing that happens when you make contact with any opposition is that plan goes completely into the trash. So uh, how much do you draw on your military experience, do you think, in your position as CEO?
3: it's a hundred percent not 99.9 it's a hundred percent and i'll tell you this i was not known to be somebody to one join the military or two even go to college before i went into the marines in fact whenever i told everybody i'm joining the military the marines of all branches everyone didn't even take me seriously they're like yeah right whatever and then i was on record numerous times before then saying i'm not the guy that's going to go to college and then now i have an mba all this is credit to my time in the Marines. And the answer is, is basically because of this, whenever I said, okay, I'm going into the Marines. That was the epitome of me stepping 100% out of my comfort zone. And so now I find myself more and more often living outside of the realm, which you would label as my comfort zone. And I'm becoming more and more comfortable doing it. So the, I have to credit a hundred percent of that to me joining the Marines because That was the first step of me finding a way to step out of my comfort zone and being okay with it.
0: We're speaking with Chris White. Chris, served in the United States Marine Corps, now serves as the CEO of Freedom Hard, a relatively new brand that's expanded in great ways since it started and rather quickly. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Chris, is the fact that you guys are are tied to several charities. In fact, you give a dollar from every bag of coffee that you sell to uh, a, a nonprofit organization, which, you know, that that's fantastic and that's something that I certainly support. But from a business standpoint, particularly as a new company, uh, how much how impo- how important was it to you to be associated with those nonprofits to know that you're giving you know some of your profit to them?
3: Uh, it's it's extremely important, and I'll I'll tell you the reasoning why, and it's because you know uh, the number two commodity in the world right now is coffee, and that's num- that's number two next to only oil. So. Considering how many people out there that drink coffee, you then have to take into consideration how many coffee companies are out there, and there's an endless amount of us. And then it's even more complicated than that. Uh, the consumer is very loyal to the types of coffee that they actually drink. It's very hard to get someone to change their mind on that. and so. One, so you take that and you put it on the back burner and you think, okay, I've now stumbled across uh, a potential business opportunity for me to get into the coffee arena. And I thought, okay, I can't just stand on my coffee table and wave my my arms in the air and say, hey, Freedom Hard now has coffee. Come try it. That's not going to be good enough. And so I always had to find a way to make my business model extremely unique, but also impactful enough to where people can hear about Freedom Hard coffee and want to Uh, take the risk of, you know, basically avoiding whoever they're loyal to uh, in terms of their coffee uh, company before me. So the the idea came up with, uh, you know, I could partner with these nonprofits and then I could allow them to receive a dollar per a bag of coffee that's allowed by the consumer. So for the consumer to go to freedomhard.com, you get the selection, not me. It's not me that says, hey, $1 per every bag of coffee goes to this nonprofit. You get the selection, the flexibility of identifying which nonprofit you want the $1 to go to, which is kind of unheard of. But also the other side of the coin is I allow these six um, nonprofit organizations to help me market the product, right? So if I strategically place them all over the United States by betting them first, then everybody helps me market the product and then I become six people all at once.
0: Wow, really, a lot goes into this, and that's why you've got your MBA, Chris White, CEO of Freedom Hard, uh, a Marine who has moved into uh, really a bunch of businesses here, all wrapped into one, dealing with coffee, dealing with apparel, dealing with cigars, and you just mentioned uh, whiskey is is soon to come for you. So, what is the future of Freedom Hard? You've had you've had so much success with Freedom Hard in such a relatively short period of time. Where do you see things going from here, and do you have anything that's on? On the horizon that you can tell us about?
3: Absolutely. Um, so the future is definitely bright for Freedom Hard, and it comes in kind of twofold. Uh, one is the more important reason, which I'll label it as this. I want Freedom Hard to be known as the brand that reinvigorated patriotism for America. And if you look at those words that I chose, I chose them very carefully. And nowhere in that statement did I say something about becoming a hundred million dollar organization or selling a whole bunch of products. If my brand is recognized in five, 10 years from now as the brand that reinvigorated patriotism, that is the ultimate Holy grail for me. That means I would gladly take that and sacrifice anybody buying any of our products, because that's what, that's not what we're about. We are a brand, not a product. And so in doing that, we have to get the brand out there by doing that. You have to, you know, Dish out products, commercialize new ones, and so what's 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 on the horizon for Freedom Heart is, we're going to be opening up a whole bunch of brick and mortars, but it's not just going to be your typical, uh, your typical company that you see in like a strip center or something like that. What we want to do is open up uh, coffee, whiskey, and cigar lounges to where. If you are a patriot, it doesn't matter if you're a veteran or not, but if you're a patriot, you support patriotism, you support the Constitution, you support veterans, military first responders. You can come into this establishment and hang out and feel a sense of pride within your country and also relax a bit and share some war stories, share some Uh, some cool ideas and sit around and lounge basically while we have uh, some cool some some cool products that you can partake in like smoking some cool cigars drinking some whiskey or or drinking coffee but you can also purchase some apparel items as well
0: you know it's one of those things that we've talked to people about and and putting together a space where people can come together veterans and patriots and everyone else uh, that can often be the biggest thing just getting those people in a room together and it sounds like that is what the plan is for chris white Former Marine, current CEO of Freedom Hard. Now, Chris, if people are interested in finding out more about Freedom Hard, where can they go? Are you guys on social media? You got a website? Tell us where to go to find out more about the brand.
3: Oh, absolutely. Just about any social media platform. If you just type in Freedom Hard, you'll see see the logos pop up there. But anyone can also go get uh, a pretty good, uh, solid understanding if they just go to FreedomHard.com.